Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. It's always a treat to welcome back into our studios Christopher Seaman, the conductor laureate of your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. And today he brings us a new friend, a new guest with him, violinist Angelo Zhongyu. I'd like to welcome both of you into our studios. It's nice to have you both here on what is a, a little treacherous. I'm a treacherous time right now, a little bit of ice. Well, I'm happy to conduct our great orchestra in any weather. We've pretty well had any weather, haven't we, over the last few days? Yes, we have. You know, just flip a coin and it's a new season. So we've got a program that is usually three, but this time is four. Uh, and the concert starts out with a suite of rebellion. Yes. Um, Kodai, the Hungarian composer, was a strong uh, Hungarian person who um, felt very strongly that Hungary needed to be free. And there's a, there's a folk song, a Hungarian folk song, about a peacock flying over the prison house to, to rescue the prisoners. And he writes a lot of variations on them, some of them heartfelt and passionate, some of them witty, some of them uh, jokey, almost, and some of them sinister. It's the most wonderful set of variations, the peacock variations by Sultan Kodai. Did he get in trouble for writing this? I never heard that he did. I wouldn't deny it. <laughs> so the, the piece was never banned? Oh, it? no, it was f premiered by Mengelberg uh, with the Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam in the early 1940s, I think and got no closer to home because that would have caused a bit of a problem. Well, it was published in Hungary in 1941, and then the rights passed to Boozy and Hawks, so I don't know quite the history of that. But most composers sailed very near the wind under communist regimes. Prokofiev, Shostakovich, you know, they had to figure out how far they dared go in making their feelings known musically. And this is a lovely suite, and one of the things that I love about this suite is the writing for the winds. The winds yes. have a huge part in this. Yes, beautiful woodwind writing, but also, I mean, very good brass writing. is a very solemn funeral march, chorale thing for the trombones, and the string writing is also super. I mean, he just orchestrated really well. You picked this program and put it together, and, and I know that you like the peacock. I've I've seen you do this uh, some years back, but with yes, the RPO. Yes, we did it many, many years ago. What is it about the peacock variations that uh, speaks to you? Well, it speaks to the heart. Uh, it's a passionate piece. It's a piece with connotations of freedom, and I think that speaks to everybody. You know, people wanting freedom who don't have it. It speaks to all of us. But it's just superbly written. Each variation has its own character, very clearly defined, and he's done it so there's enough contrast as you go from one variation to the next. Kodai, like so many English composers, was a folk collector. Yes, he was. He went around collecting folk songs all around Hungary. Vaughan Williams, you're alluding to the English composers who did it. Vaughan Williams did it, Holtz did it, um, various other ones did it, yes. It was a revival, and people found that there was something in the modes, the scale, the notes used in folk songs that they could incorporate into their own style and actually expand their style with. That's the, absolutely true of Vaughan Williams. It seems to me also that there is a kind of a subtext there uh, that it's somehow these folk-based pieces go to your heart so quickly and so easily as if it's just in the, in the genetics of the piece and in your genetics as well. Well, I think folk music came from the people. and We're all people, and it's going back to the people when we hear it, so we would, it would resonate with us. 
The second piece um, is the Violin Concerto Number no. 4 by Mozart, and uh, it is going to star this week a violinist we have never had uh, in, in the U.S. or in, in Rochester before, Angelo Jiangyu. Uh, wh now, where are you from, Angelo? Well, I was born in a place called Inner Mongolia. It's, um, you know, <laughs> maybe a place not many people know, uh, but it does exist. <laughs> I can promise you that. Um, it's in between the Outer Mongolia, uh, which is actually a country, and, and China. It's in the border area. It's in the very north of China. And uh, it's, it shares many similar cultures with the, the Mongolians, uh, but also has influence with the Chinese people. So it's a mixture of both. How much classical music can be found in Inner Mongolia? Well, surprisingly, if you go there now, you will see a lot of kids studying music, especially piano and violin. And they have great orchestras in multiple cities in the province. And uh, because I, I think because of the love towards music and all the internet and social media um, today, so uh, many parents, they want their kids to study some music, not even for the purpose of becoming a musician, hopefully, but also just to have a good uh, interest in something. Did, when did you actually start playing violin? Uh, I would say five, when I really start picking up the violin. And it's funny that um, uh, my parents brought me to a music teacher who kind of taught everything. <laughs> um, traditional Mongolian instruments, we had has a horse head, <laughs> and then um, there is piano, there is violin. So, of course, the teacher wants me to study piano because I have relatively uh, bigger hands. And then my parents thought, okay, piano, that's a huge thing, must be very expensive, right? And then they saw a little violin case on the side. They thought, okay, that's small. So maybe we can afford that. And turns out to be the biggest mistake they made <laughs> in their life because the violin I'll be performing tomorrow and Saturday is a Stradivarius and it worth, I don't know, $7 million. It turns out to be the most expensive instrument that they thought was cheap. So that's how I started. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so funny that things can turn out to be that way. <laughs> Who knew, right? Is it your Stradivarius? Oh, no. Oh, no. It belongs to an anonymous owner who does not uh, prefer to be uh, public. And but lets yeah. you play it. Yes. So for how long do you get this, Angelo? I've already played it for, say, seven years, eight years. It's been... a uh, great relationship. I never treat the instruments as a piece of wood. I treat it as a person. I believe it behaves like a person. For example, today I, I came in and the weather was not so nice, so it feels a little shy. It feels a little, I don't know, almost like you're jet lagged, just, uh, just like where I am right now because I just came back from Shanghai had a concert there. So it's just like a person. I never treat it like a piece of wood. And every day is different. Every single note requires different pressure, bow speed. And every day is a new experience. That's what's it's, it's different from a modern instrument. So it has a soul. So that's why I, I enjoy it so much. So even today, after you know seven, eight years playing this instrument every day, I'm still discovering new things every day. Do you feel the fingers of the violinists who played this before you? Well, uh, <laughs> I wish I could, but no, I, I, I'd rather to feel my own fingers. <laughs> Do you know who they were? I mean, does anyone we 
we we we know uh, for sure that one of the first female violinists who actually made a career whose name is Lambert Murray or Marie Lambert who was a student of Carl Flesch and she used to play on this instrument and then she sold it to um, Solomon. I forgot his la- uh, his first name. Who used to be a big, big record company owner, and he's an amateur violinist. And that's why the violin is in a very, very good shape right now. Because I, I don't know if it's it's a good thing or bad thing that not so many people had played on it. So the condition is still very good. Now, one of the things is that it has to be played on. It can't yes. it can't be put in a closet and left there, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't leave a kid in a closet. You shouldn't leave a Strat in a closet. <laughs> well, you're you're bringing this violin to play the Mozart Violin Concerto Number Four. First comment: We don't tend to see the Mozart Violin Concertos played in the hall. Usually, if it's Mozart, it's his other instrument, the the piano. Now, Christopher, people seem to forget that Mozart was not just a terrific pianist, but he was a darn good violinist as well. Yes, he was. He played very well. Uh, I did. He premiered this one, didn't he himself? I th- yes, I I, mean, I I believe yeah, so. And I think, he yeah. he composed all five violin concerto at the age of seventeen. Uh, let's pause for a minute. What I, what was I doing when I was seventeen? Okay, and then <laughs> he completed five concertos in less than half a year. So okay, so that's why he's talking directly to the god. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why this person exists. <laughs> so, you know, when yeah. I talk to pianists who mm-hmm. play something that Beethoven wrote for himself or Brahms wrote, I ask them, what kind of pianist was he? So what kind of violinist was Mozart? Oh, he is a terrific violinist. And the thing is, it never made the audience feel like, okay, it is a very difficult piece. But that's actually exactly the hard part. Because it's it sounds so easy, it has to be perfect. And also, back then, I don't know, 200 years ago, people have different instruments set up. People's muscles work differently b- because they were trained differently. So um, it is very funny that when I play Paganini or Wieniawski, which are considered to be the hardest on violin, actually, I don't feel the same difficulty as opposed to Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach in some cases, because the mechanics are very, very different, which makes Mozart, in my opinion, the hardest to really understand and grasp, uh, just for, for from an even pure instrumental point of view. Yeah. Now, I remember back um, a few years back when Stephen Kovacevic came to town and played with the RPO, and you were the conductor, and he yeah. played Mozart. And it was so completely effortless mm-hmm. that I think the audience was taken aback and they and they did not rise to their feet as one and I know I sat there thinking that was one of the most amazing yeah. performances uh, I have ever seen a pianist do and yet it looks like yeah I could do that well it's the art that conceals the art isn't it and also in Stevens playing I mean he is a very very fine pianist but he makes it look easy and a lot of the great pianists, Radu Lupu, Andreas Schiff, Murray Pariah, they just sit there and play in the simplest way. There's no agonizing faces, gesturing about, or, you know, none of that. They just sit and play. And all the pianists who played when I was in the London Philharmonic, my first job in my 20s, Rubenstein, um, Badura Skoda, um, Clifford Curzon, just sat 
and sim it sounded out of this world, but there were no histrionics, no miming, and none of that. So let's talk about histrionics and miming and so on a little bit, Angelo, because there are a couple of ways that people play violins, and some of them are dramatically, and some of them are a little more centered and calm. What kind of violinist are you? Well, I would say I'm probably um, the type that would like to communicate with the audience um, because I think a, a performer should feel the connections, especially in a live performance, feel the connection. Sometimes when I enter a concert hall, I can already sense the warmth of the audience even before I play. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. It's almost like a conductor when you conduct. When you have your upbeat, you already know that it's about to sound it like a forte or piano or any kind of gesture. So it's the same thing I feel. So I would say I'm towards uh, the communicative uh, side. Yeah, but you don't uh, walk around and jump about. And look well, I, I, well I, 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 I worry if I slip, then the violin got destroyed <laughs> <laughs> and I got injured, so I can't really play anymore. <laughs> yeah, but no, yeah. I, I, I don't think, I don't think um, to be uh, a violinist is about showmanship. Of course, we need that, and I play a lot of show pieces, Paganini, Sarasate, Gunevsky, but I think it's important to know the essence of the music, th of the piece. So, like, I would always imagine what would Mozart do here. I can only imagine, of course. I couldn't ask him. But from the black and white line, from the manuscript, from the score, I can imagine why he did something like this. And then I can sort of recreate the feelings. And of, of course, add some of my own personalities, which luckily I feel like the closest composer to me, to my personality, is Mozart. So I never felt any boundaries when I play his piece. And I always learn his pieces in one or two days, whereas maybe a Shostakovich would take two months. Okay, so you have this great link with Mozart. When you talk about playing one of those show pieces, the thing they all have in common is the big boom end. <laughs> this piece doesn't do that. This no, piece, it just floats away into the heavens. It's extraordinary, this decision. Do you have any thoughts as to why Mozart decided, who wrote any number of big bang endings, why he decided with this one that it would just, as you so beautifully say, float away at the end? Yeah, I think Maestro probably has uh, a very good explanation to that. I'll, I'll save the best for the last. <laughs> but uh, in my opinion, is like, um, he is trying to really be true to himself. That's how I see it. And he's always joking around, you know, uh, slap on somebody and tap on your shoulders and then just run away. It's like a little, I'm, I, I feel like almost like a ghost kind of feeling personality. But, you know, it's part of who he is. And uh, he doesn't want to end all, this, uh, all the pieces the same. And yeah, I believe... Sick. I believe in those period of time when he was 17, he was go through a period of like, hey, I'm just going to do things on the contrary, like completely differently. I'm not going to just end it like boom. I'm just going to let it fly to the sky. And almost like when you, uh, when you watch an opera and a person quietly exit without really knowing. And it, it's not like, a, hey, goodbye, and then th that person never leaves. But he's like, hey, goodbye, and then he just le left. That kind of effect is more special to me as opposed to a very lengthy farewell. So that's, that's just my thought. Well, you mentioned that Mozart's harder than the, the fireworks pieces. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that. There are fewer notes, but they are more perfect. 
on yes. And therefore, <laughs> when you play them, there are more demands on your perfection because there are only 20 notes in the minute, whereas in Vienniowski there are about 2,000. And if two of them are not quite right, nobody knows. With Mozart, if two of them are not quite right, everybody knows. Having said that, he does not play notes that are not quite right. I just oh, have to say geez. that. So, so I don't want people to decide <laughs> not to come to the concerts. I'll keep my finger crossed. <laughs> yes. As a maestro, which is harder for you, the big boom or that the, the, the flight to the sky? Um, I enjoy them both. I mean, take the Brahms symphonies. The third symphony ends very serene and very quiet and very spiritual, actually. I love that ending. But I enjoy the big endings, as anyone will know who's seen me. So I'm, I've got room for both. And as Angelo just said, Mozart had room for both and didn't feel compelled to be conventional. I think he was naturally unconventional as a person. And he didn't always know when not to say things. Have you two ever worked together before? First time, even though it felt like we've known each other for quite quite some time, because it felt so effortless to to follow, to cooperate, and uh, the orchestra does a fantastic job. They even imitate all my tricky slurs and <laughs> trills and ungans. You know, it's it's just amazing combination. So yeah, but it's it is our first time. Actually, this morning we had our first rehearsal, our first meeting. <laughs> Outstanding. And what did you think when you, you said you feel the hall when you walked into Kodak Hall? Did you get a vibe? Well, it's a beautiful hall. I, I just I, I just can't believe it. I've seen the picture before, but when I really actually enter the hall, I, I'm still stunned by the beauty and the acoustic uh, of the hall. And uh, but I, I'll I'll have to tell you how I feel maybe after the first concert because when with the audience inside it's a completely different mm -hmm. feeling. You will feel more warmth, and you can even feel the gaze <laughs> when, when I started playing. You know, it can be a very very nice thing sometimes because you know sometimes you feel this anxiety, especially when I'm you know, traveling too much and feel the jet lag. And sometimes I feel like, okay, where am I? <laughs> what am I doing? Okay, which Mozart concerto I'm playing tonight? And then I feel their, their warmth. It's like that, that really makes all the nerves goes away. You play all five? Uh, I do play two, three, four, and five. Number one, nobody has asked me to do it, <laughs> so I'm waiting for that. <laughs> is there, do you have, uh, it's a silly question, mm -hmm. but I'll ask it nonetheless. Um, do you have a favorite of the five? Um, well, it's funny that I, I like the first movement of the th third concerto. Which key is that? G major. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I love the mm. last movement of the... Uh, Turkish number five yes. and the second movement slow movement of the number four which we will be playing this Thursday and uh, Saturday why is the slow movement speak to you so well when I listened to it I started to cry I don't know I don't know why it almost feel like when you see a movie that the person is crying so hard uh, that she's trying to to act as if she's so sad, but then the audience remain unmoved. Mm -hmm. But if a person just say a simple word, or even not speaking any words, just wave his hands towards you and walk away, and then things like this will move people. I think it's something, you know, the simplicity is probably the key 
to it. And wh when I listen to it, I ju I, I'm, I'm just totally amazed by the simplicity of Mozart's writing in this particular movement. He used the most simple material to create something magnificent. You know, it's, it's not so hard if you have gold and pearl and diamond and create something magnificent because the elements are already there. But if you use soil, wood, glass, things like this, simplest um, uh, uh, you know, material you can find in daily life and create something that nobody has ever seen before. I think that's amazing. So I think that's exactly the reason why I'm so attached to this solo movement. And this quite, I mean, that is lovely. Oh, yeah. And to add to that, Mozart was an opera composer. Oh, yes. And it sings. Oh, yeah. And it sings to the heart. Exactly. You know. you know, I had a wonderful acting teacher, and Neil Mackenzie, and he once said that as, as, as an actor or an actress, you shouldn't cry. He said it's the attempt to not cry, the mm -hmm. working against that need to cry that makes the audience cry. You have to let the audience come to that. You can't put it on. The composer Richard Strauss said to young conductors, don't sweat, let the orchestra sweat. Don't <laughs> weep, let the public weep. It's a little bit cynical because he had a very dry sense of humor. But when we play music and conduct music, we're not eating it, we're cooking it. And there is a difference. We have two other pieces on the program, and they are also um, very simple and yet very complex. Uh, let's start with a piece of music that came out of an opera, actually, and it was your idol, Mr. Beecham, who was uh, who's responsible for actually bringing the Walk to the Paradise Garden by Delius into the concert hall. Yeah. Delius wrote an opera, the same story as Romeo and Juliet, two families who don't get along, boy and girl from different sides fall in love, it doesn't work out, it ends in tragedy. And that, uh, that opera is called A Village, Romeo and Juliet, as opposed to Aristocracy, Romeo and Juliet, which the Shakespeare play was. And th so these young people decide it's not going to work out. Very tragically, they decide to end their own lives. And they walk through this shady wooden uh, woodland glade, past a place called the Paradise Garden, which is an inn, and it's called the Walk to the Paradise Garden, and it is extremely nostalgic and sad, and it's, I, I, it's a wonderful piece. I can't do it enough. It's funny because when we hear Walk to the Paradise Garden, we think, uh, if you don't Happy know times. the stories, yes. and it's a beautiful pl place, it's a gorgeous garden, it's filled with flowers and butterflies and birds, but it's not, it's a seedy little inn. Yeah, and it's also the last garden and the last trees that they would ever see. That's what makes it sad. This was an interesting piece of music because it sounds very English. It has that sort of folk song English thing, and yet it was written by a man who left England, moved to France, and would later on say he hated his hometown. And, yeah. and yet his music retains the sense of England. Yes, it does. And he, he wrote a number of pieces with folk song connections. I mean, Brig Fair, which we've done at the RPO, that is variations on an English folk song. But Delius, he was a Yorkshireman, and he was very outspoken, and he preferred the climate uh, of, of Florida and other places, and then he lived in France for a time. And he may have been slightly soured by not having opportunities to have his music played when he was young. That can turn you off a country. 
you know. So I think he was quite complicated. But Beecham and he were very good friends. And Beecham said a wonderful thing. He said he was conducting this piece by Delius, not this one, another piece, and said to him, Frederick, how do you want this bit to go? How should I do it? And Delius said, why, well, I, I have no idea, Thomas. Just do it how you feel. And uh, sure, sure, you must have. So, oh, no, just do what you feel. So Beecham said at the concert, I did it the way I felt. And Delia said to me afterwards, that's exactly how I wanted it. And then Beecham said, I have treated every other composer the same ever since, which I think is fantastic. Well, like Odai, Beach, or, or Delius writes beautifully for winds. Oh, yes. Uh, he does, yes. Wonderful so, uh, oboe solos, clarinet, English horn, and so, yes, it's beautiful. It strikes me sometimes a little bit like, maybe it's just oversimplification, like the, the shepherd's horns uh, as they as they play their folk songs in the fields, watching their flocks. Yes, it, 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 it does have a slight feeling of that. That's, that's right. That pastoral thing. Yes, um, it, it is pastoral. Why did you why did you choose this piece? Has well, um, Ward Stair was keen that I should do Enigma, and I was delighted that he felt that, and so we're doing Enigma, and it's only half an hour. And very often when I do Enigma, I do this piece just before it, because it sets a lovely atmosphere. In fact, once my second visit ever to this orchestra in the summer of 1985, we played out at Canandaigua, which still sounded like a concert hall in those days. And the second half was the Paradise Garden and the Enigma Variations. I remember that very clearly. Which on a warm summer night outside under yeah, the stars. Yeah, it wasn't too hot. I've sweated my way through concerts there, but this was just about okay. It must have been beautiful under the stars. Yes. So you, you follow this up with, uh, with the Enigma Variations, which... As Angela was saying, such a simple thing for Mozart begins with such a simple thing. Yes, and each variation is a portrait of one of his friends, a, a musical character study, a musical caricature in some cases, and they are all eccentric Brits, and we all know what they're like, don't we? And uh, that's a delightful collection of pieces, some of them rather sad. The most famous one, Nimrod, was his best friend, who was also his publisher, and without his encouragement, Elgar would have given up composing. So we owe a lot to Nimrod, whose real name was Jaeger. You also owe, which is German for hunter. That's right. That's why I called him Nimrod. Nimrod, the mighty hunter in the Old Testament. Well done, Julia. Well, we also owe a lot to Alice Elgar because the story of how this came about was simply because of her. He came into his house after a bad day of work. He sat down at the piano. He plucked out a little melody. She said, hey, that sounds pretty good. Play it again. So he did, and he composed it. And th there's an acrostic, and there's an arrangement of notes, which actually spells a Caris, to Caris, which was his daughter's name, Caris, whose name was based on Caroline Alice, who was his wife, which was his wife's name. And this acrostic, I figured it out. It was like seeing a ghost. It spelled out the notes at the beginning. If you put them into the A minor, the white notes, instead of black notes, it spells out a Caris. And I wrote to Sir Adrian Bolt, who I played for many times, and he was a new Elgar, was a great Elgar conductor, with this theory. And Bolt replied, very ingenious, I'm with Elgar's daughter, I'd rather not know. <laughs> so that was the end of that. Well, now there, but you bring up something interesting, because allegedly there is this other enigma, this other puzzle in it that people keep trying to figure yes, out. Yes. He says it's not played. Um, could you have 
found it out? Well, it's a pretty coincidence that the first six notes, uh, seven notes of the piece, done as an acrostic, spell a carries to carries. That's a heck of a coincidence. But there are many other theories, you see. Another is that these are his 13 dearest friends, and he was a Catholic, and he'd heard at Mass the previous Sunday the 13th chapter of... First Corinthians, which is all about love, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, you know. And so those are the 13 people he loved most, and there are 13 uh, verses in the one, you know, there are many, many. And you see, he loved puzzles. He loved crosswords. He loved all gadgets. When the recording started, it was his new toy. He loved it. So I think it could be a whole complexity of things. But the point about it is, even if you know nothing about any of that, it is the most magnificent set of variations. The thing that strikes me about this piece, too, is he was 42 years old. This was the piece that made his career. That's right. He'd been toiling as a teacher, hating his job, thought, as you pointed out, it was over, and then suddenly, this. Yeah. Well, he, he was a teacher and a conductor, and he played the bassoon, and he played the violin, and he played the trombone. And all the wind parts he played on the bassoon, just to check, all the string parts, including the double bass part, he played on the violin, all the brass parts he played on the trombone, because his theory was, give them something to do, for goodness sake. And you ask any orchestral player, there's something to do in Elgar. You like Elgar very much. Why does Elgar speak to you? Oh, that's a very difficult one. There's a kind of nostalgia about it that appeals to me. And um, it is extremely emotional, but in a contained kind of way. And I think that's an English characteristic that a lot of us have. We're able to um, go into meltdown, but we don't do it frequently. And you certainly don't do it publicly. No. And Elgar, you know, he looked like a retired general. Uh, droopy white moustache, he wore plus fours, he had dogs, he probably rode horses. And you see, he came from a tradesman's family, which doesn't matter nowadays, it mattered then. His father ran a music store, and therefore he was trades class. But his wife was from a, quote, good, unquote, family, more aristocratic, and so she was able to teach him how to hold his knife and generally to how to fit in. And in those days, if you wanted your music played, you had to be in with Lord Fauntleroy because he was on the board of the Three Choirs Festival. So she was very skillful in helping him promote himself and his music. It's interesting. He gave her the first, um, the very first uh, variation. He gave himself the last variation. Uh, he starts with her, and yet as lovely as Alice's variation is, it is always Nimrod that we come back to. Yes. Well, it is such a good tune. I mean, it is such a good tune. And it has certain associations. You see, we have Remembrance Day, when we remember people who fell in the wars. And it's in, on November the 11th, and it's traditional to play it. And so it's kind of expected in England. And it has all those associations as well. But it is an absolutely magnificent tune. Uh, Angelo, as, as a young man who was born in Inner Mongolia, raised in China, and now lives in the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts, <laughs> um, how, does, how does Elgar's piece strike you? Well, to be honest, I'm very excited to hear uh, the second half of the concert because um, I've only listened to it 
on CDs. I've never watched a live performance, so this will be my first time. <laughs> so I'm very, very excited. And, uh, and one of the encore pieces I always choose to play is Alga's uh, Salud Amour. It's so beautiful. And I think it, it I don't know, I, I, I totally agree with the nostalgic feeling. It's even I'm not uh, you know, British, I, I still feel this. Well, you have a heart for nostalgia. The, I think yes, of course. Do. And yes. we still feel this homesick, oh, yeah. come on, I just left home. <laughs> it's a so, lost yeah. happiness or a happiness he never even found in the first place. Exactly. I, I totally agree wholeheartedly. Well, he found Alison. That means he did pretty well. Yes. She was quite something, and he owed her a lot and said so. Well, I think we owe you a lot for bringing so much joy to us for so many years. It's been a year or two with us. So thank you for coming back in. So nice to have you back in town, Christopher. Thank you. And Angelo, welcome to Rochester. We <laughs> I look, love it. <laughs> we look forward to having you play, and then we look forward to having you come back and play again. Oh, thank you. Uh, Pleasure is mine. Christopher Seaman and Angelo Zhang Yu uh, were our guests today for this podcast. I'm Julia Figueres. If you would like any information about the Rochester Philharmonic season, you can go to rpo.org. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.